Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 280. Today is February 9th, 2019. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, today I have a really interesting episode for you. Before we get into it, I just want to do a really quick commentary on what's happening in the stock market. And when I say quick, I really mean that this is going to be a snapshot because I don't have a whole lot of new things to add to what's going on. Where we're at in the marketplace now is the same thing that I've been talking about for the last 12 months, and so far nothing's changed. The economy is humming along, it's going to continue to grow, the market's going to move up and down, and if and when those downturns and those dips come in the stock market, if I have any excess cash or capital, I'm going to be buying at that point. And so right now, the S&P 500 is up somewhere in the neighborhood of 17% from the low that was put in at Christmas Eve at the end of this past year. There was a little bit of volatility on Wednesday, Thursday of this week, but the market closed up for the week. There doesn't seem to be any panic selling taking place. And if it were to dip three or four or five or six percent, I would likely view that as a buying opportunity, just as I did over the past 12 months, because at the end of the day, look at where the stock market is. The S&P 500 right now is sitting right around 2,700. That's about 8, 8.5% off of the highs that it hit twice last year. I think it's likely to go back and hit those highs probably at least twice this year. It's also sitting at a point of about fair value. I've estimated based on 2019 earnings that fair value for this market, that would be a 16 times multiple. That's right around 2730 That same level is also where the 200-day moving average is, right around that level. And there's also a great deal of overhead resistance in that range from about 2,700 to 2,750. If you look at a chart of the S&P 500 over the last year, you'll see that mid-range zone is right around that 2,700, 2,750. And so the price is likely to oscillate around that level because that's where the 200-day moving average is, that's where fair value is, and that's also where the midpoint is for the oscillation over the past 12 months or so. It's the center of mass of the market. Now, will it bounce up 10% from there or will it drop 10% from there? I have no way of knowing. No one does. We can't predict the future. But what we can do is assign probabilities to things. I do believe over the long term, it's going up, and so that's why I'm holding my existing positions, and as I see opportunities to buy into this market, I continue to do that. Okay, I've already said too much about the market in this episode. I would encourage you, though, to go over to my YouTube channel. I continue to put new content up over there, and that's where you'll see me explain things like fair value and fear and greed and tight chart patterns and not only timely information about maybe what's happened over the last week or over the last month, but also actionable information like how to plot a simple moving average or how to analyze the S&P 500 or whether it's a good idea to buy gold or maybe a particular stock. All that information's over there. I'm slowly building content. I think there's now 30, 31, 32 videos up. And I do plan to continue to build that property over there. So do check out the Wellsteading podcast on YouTube as a supplement to what we talk about here. Now, as far as today's episode, what I want to hone in on today 
is five keys to success that I think that we can learn from Charles Lindbergh and from his flight, his solo flight across the Atlantic from New York to Paris that took place in 1927. Now I want to talk about this subject because I think these five keys are critical to success, whether you're trying to succeed in your own career or whether you're trying to succeed in business or invest in the stock market or build your personal wealth. Whatever it is, I think that these five items that I'm going to pull out of Charles Lindbergh's life are things that you can apply to your own life. First off, before I even go into these five things, I just want to mention that Charles Lindbergh was extremely unlikely to be the pilot that not only flew across the Atlantic on the first nonstop flight from New York to Paris, but he did it alone. He did it solo. And that was a very unlikely thing to happen because for the previous decade before he made his historic flight, men had tried to pilot aircraft across the Atlantic with crews, with very good supplies and aircrafts and support and experience, and none of them were able to accomplish what Charles Lindbergh did as a solo pilot. The men that came before him were no slouches. They were experienced pilots from World War I. In some cases, they were pilots that still had the backing of their governments behind them, so they had a lot more resources and better supplies and aircraft and money backing them up. And in every case, they had a crew. Charles Lindbergh did it as a team of one. Other pilots that tried to cross the Atlantic did it with at least two or three, or in some cases, four total crew members. And in each case, they failed. Well, Lindbergh wasn't a World War I pilot. Lindbergh didn't have a crew. Lindbergh had virtually no flight experience flying over water, let alone an ocean. Lindbergh cut his teeth as an aviator delivering the U.S. mail. He was one of those early days barnstorming pilots that had virtually all of his flight hours over the Midwest delivering mail. Now, while he did have military training, as most pilots did in those days, he was too young to have served in World War I. So he had no experience in combat or under extreme demanding combat flying sorties or flying in unknown enemy territory. So he was a very unlikely candidate to be the first one to fly across the Atlantic. But you know what? He did. He was the man that did it. And let me tell you five reasons why I think he had an edge over everybody else. And I think these are five things that are relevant and you can apply in your own life. So here they are. I'm going to go through them quickly and I'm going to hit them from the least important to the most important. Number five, extensive planning. Charles Lindbergh just didn't go out on a whim and decide one day that he was going to fly across the Atlantic. He had trained for years as a pilot. And although it was as a pilot that was delivering the mail, he went over and above what the normal barnstorming pilot would do. He learned not only how to fly, but he learned about mechanics and aircraft design and everything he could about aeronautics and how to handle his plane in all types of weather and how to handle it in emergency situations and everything he could know about the industry he was in, which was aviation. And so he took that knowledge of flying around the Midwest and he applied that to what he thought would be required to have a successful 3,000-mile flight across the Atlantic Ocean. He studied other people that had done it and failed, and he found other people that were interested in it, and he built a team, and he got financial backers, and he didn't suffer from analysis paralysis. He went out and tried things. 
if they thought they had a good aircraft design, he'd take it up and he'd fly it from St. Louis to, you know, Minneapolis or somewhere. And he'd try it out in different weather conditions. If it didn't work, they'd make improvements. But the key to all this is that he extensively planned for the trip. He didn't do it on a whim. He didn't try and rely on luck. He had a plan. Number four is technology, his use of technology. You see, because as he started his planning phases out, he knew some things did and didn't work. And so to overcome the things that didn't work or to have a higher success rate for the things that would work, he employed new technology. He looked for the best aerodynamic aircraft that he could find. He worked with different engine type designs and things like the best methods for predicting weather or for improving navigation. Pursuing these technologies took time and money and effort, and so he sacrificed other things so that he could purchase and deploy the best technology that he thought that was most appropriate to his success that was based on that planning phase that we just talked about. And not only did he study and implement the technology, but he did his best to be a subject matter expert in that technology to the extent that he could. That's why he was successful flying as a solo pilot when other people needed a crew. He didn't need to rely on somebody to do his navigation because he was capable of doing it for himself. He had to do all those things on his own, and he was capable of doing them because he not only had an in-depth knowledge of the technology, but how to apply and to operate it as well. Now that takes us on to number three. And the third thing And I think one of the most important things that led to Charles Lindbergh's success and that can lead to your success is that his actions were austere and simple. He did his extensive planning. He used the utmost technology that he could afford and that was available to him. But at the same time, he did it under very simple and very austere conditions. And he did this across the board, from the things he brought on the mission to the type of technology and aircraft that he used, and to even the fact that he did it as a solo pilot. He reduced everything down to the most simplest and easiest form. He didn't take undue risks, and he didn't use systems that were overly complicated. I'll give you an example. The aircraft that he flew in was a single-engine plane. Now, other pilots and air crews that had failed ahead of Lindbergh, many of them had aircraft that had two or more engines. And while you may think that that redundancy is beneficial, Lindbergh's thought was that he would simplify it by going with one single engine and purchasing the best engine and the best technology that he could afford. And so rather than splitting that money up into you know purchasing a plane that had two engines, he'd rather have one good engine than two mediocre engines. Because his thought was that if he's flying across the Atlantic and he has an engine failure... And he was in a dual-engine aircraft that, yes, he would have that second engine, but he didn't think that that engine would be strong enough to propel him all the way across the ocean. And so he'd either have to turn around or crash land anyways. And so his thought was that if two or three or four engines weren't really going to be beneficial, and if he had one really good engine that was the best that he could have, that that would not only provide just one choke point and one less thing that would fail, but it would also reduce the overall weight of the aircraft and thus being able to carry more fuel and being more aerodynamic. And so it was a risk, but he thought it was a worthy risk to take. It was simple and austere. 
And as far as the design of the aircraft, you have to remember that really what he flew was nothing more than a kite. I mean, it was a, an airframe that was made out of steel tubing, and it was wrapped in you know, a canvas fabric. But he wanted to make that as aerodynamic as possible. And so he did without aesthetics and things that would have made it more comfortable for him. For example, he didn't have a full view of a cockpit. He couldn't see in front of him because he didn't have a glass cockpit because the strength and the aerodynamic design of the aircraft would have been compromised. And so the way he looked forward was to have a periscope that would pop out of the port side of the aircraft. So if he needed to look forward, he'd pop that out. And so the forward view that he had was little more than a small rectangle, you know, about the size of a rear view mirror on a car. The genius in doing that was that it allowed him to have a better aircraft design. And although it limited his forward visibility, again, thinking in his simple austere methodology, he figured that for, you know, 99.9% .9 of the flight, he was just going to be going straight over the Atlantic, and it really didn't matter what was in front of him because it was just going to be a, a wide, vast open ocean. And so he gave up having that open cockpit or a highly visible cockpit to have a stronger and a more aerodynamic designed aircraft. The simplicity and the austerity of the things he did can also be witnessed by the lack of creature comforts that he took with him. His focus was on having the best technology, but not necessarily what was the most comfortable for him. For example, the chair that he sat in for this more than 30-hour flight was a wicker chair that was little more than outdoor furniture that people would have had on their porch in, back in the day. But he used that because it served the purpose, it was very lightweight, and then to add some comfort for himself, he had an air mattress that he could blow into to inflate. But it was very uncomfortable and very tight, and he endured that for over 30 hours because it was good enough. He knew he would be uncomfortable, but he was willing to put his body through that torture so that he could save weight and save space so that he could have better things on board like fuel and navigation equipment and other instruments that would be more successful to him getting across the ocean than whether or not he was comfortable. And while this may not sound revolutionary, again, if you go back and you look at the pilots that failed prior to Lindbergh, they didn't plan to have as austere conditions as Lindbergh did. They had things like upholstered leather seats and you know other items to make them more comfortable. I remember reading about some of the French pilots that that in their plane along with them, you know, in addition to all the flight things they had, they brought celebratory things along like you know a bottle of wine or a bottle of champagne or some kind of a, a fancy cooked duck meal so that when they landed they could celebrate. Well, Lindbergh didn't do any of that. In fact, he didn't put any planning into what would happen once he landed. And that was evident by the fact that when he did land in Paris, he didn't even have a change of clothes. He didn't have a toothbrush. He brought nothing with him for after the flight. The only things he had in that cockpit were things that would sustain him and his navigation and his flight. So he didn't have any fancy meals. He had, I think, four or five sandwiches, of which... I think he ended up only eating a, a portion of one of them in the, in the whole, I think it was like a 33-hour flight. He ate virtually nothing, and he had a canteen with, I don't know, six or seven, eight ounces of water in it. He wasn't trying to be fancy. He didn't care about his own personal situation. He just wanted to accomplish the mission. And that takes us to number two. See, the second thing that I think made him so successful and allowed him to achieve where many other men that were probably 
much more experienced and more skilled than him where they failed was that Lindbergh was able to prioritize. And what I mean by prioritize and why I think it's so important to achieving success, I guess another way we can say this is that Lindbergh was excellent at identifying value. He was able to simplify the process because he knew what to prioritize because he knew what was most important. And what he ended up prioritizing around was to have the best mechanical aircraft and him having the best skills as a pilot and a navigator. And then that one most crucial consumable item that he had to have was fuel. And so by reducing his creature comforts, by sitting in that uncomfortable wicker chair, by having only one engine in the aircraft, by not having another crew member, by not bringing anything that wasn't absolutely mission critical, he was able to have more fuel aboard that aircraft because the aircraft was worthless without gasoline. If it didn't have energy to power it, then it didn't matter how good of an engine it had or what a great navigator he was, because if he didn't have fuel, he would fall out of the sky like a rock. And so he did everything he could to be able to bring more fuel on board and to use it wisely. His thought process and the way he prioritized is really amazing. And I'll give you an example that something that really stood out to me. Lindbergh didn't bring a parachute. Now, Lindbergh was a young man. He didn't want to die, but he thought through the logic of bringing a parachute. And he was familiar with parachuting. He had parachuted before in practice jumps as well as having to parachute out of an actual mechanical failure to save his life. So he knew the reliability and the wisdom in having a parachute. But again, he thought about the cost-benefit analysis. How much space would a parachute take up and how much would it weigh? So by bringing the parachute, that meant he could bring less fuel and less technological items that could help him on the flight. And in the way he prioritized things and he thought through it, he came to the conclusion that the parachute, which was very valuable when he was delivering the mail and when he was flying across the Midwest, while it had high value in those situations, he didn't think it was much value to him in a flight between New York and Paris. And the reason was that if he crashed, it was likely to occur in one of two situations. He was either going to crash on takeoff, in which the parachute really wouldn't be beneficial because he wouldn't be high enough off the ground to be able to jump out and deploy it anyways. So if he crashed on takeoff, the parachute was really not of any value. And then the second likely crash landing that was to occur would take place over water. And so he rationalized that his likelihood of surviving a crash landing in the water was more viable than parachuting into the ocean. So his analysis drew him into the conclusion that having a parachute was of very little value. And it made sense. And that's the kind of simplistic reasoning that most people don't possess, but I think is really critical to the logical thought that separates the winners from the losers. Now, finally, that takes us to what I think is the most important factor that contributed to Charles Lindbergh's success. And I think that it's critical that any of you that want to go into business for yourself or to start your own enterprise, I think that this is the number one thing that you should be thinking about. So that number one item that gave Lindbergh the winning edge was the fact that he was a solo operator. And he did this based on the prioritization and the austerity and the simplicity that we'd already talked about. He decided that he would go alone because without a second crewman, he could bring more gasoline. And without a second crewman, all the responsibility 
was his and his alone. Lindbergh didn't rely on a co-pilot or on a navigator or on another crew member. Every action, every decision, it was his and his alone. And I think that's what made him successful. And when I look at people that start their own businesses, I see those that go it alone, those that take all their responsibility, those that don't have a partner, those that aren't relying on outside investors. Those are the people that I see being successful because they're willing to take the risk and they're willing to do what it takes to achieve their goal. The business owners that have the most problems and the most failures are generally those that have a partner and they can't come to agreements and they're suspicious of each other. And so when times get tough, rather than buckling down and accepting responsibility and doing absolutely what needs to be done, they end up passing the blame and bickering and fighting with each other. So there you have it. These things work for Charles Lindbergh. They've worked for me. I'm pretty sure they'll work for you.